Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Norton, and this is Geopolitical Economy Report. We are witnessing in the world right now historic shifts that fundamentally change the financial structure of the planet. Since the end of the first Cold War in 1991, the global economic system was largely dominated by the United States in a unipolar political and economic order. But that in recent years has completely drastically changed. And we now see the emergence of a multipolar world and many different institutions, not only political institutions, but also economic ones that challenge the hegemony of the United States and the global reserve currency, which is the US dollar. And as of 2021, the US dollar, according to data from the United States Federal Reserve, the US dollar was still used, was still held in 60% of the, the foreign exchange reserves of central banks around the world. And the US dollar was still involved in around 80% of global trade. But those figures are dropping quite drastically and quite rapidly. And today I'm gonna to be talking about a few different developments that are historic. First of all, the BRICS block, which consists of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, is challenging what it refers to as US dollar dominance. And the foreign minister of South Africa made it clear that the, the BRICS bloc is working on trying to create new payment mechanisms in order to challenge the, the hegemony of the US dollar. And the South African foreign minister added that the current economic systems that exist are unfair. They give an unfair advantage to the United States and they hurt the global South, explaining why they want to develop these new systems. She also condemned unilateral U.S. sanctions, which violate international law. At the same time, we also see a historic U.S. ally, Saudi Arabia, which maintains, helps to maintain the status of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency through the petrodollar system by selling, historically, by selling its oil in the dollar and holding its dollar, its oil revenue in U.S. Treasury securities. Saudi Arabia is also de-dollarizing and Saudi Arabia has publicly confirmed that it is interested in selling oil in other currencies. And we know that in December, the Chinese president Xi Jinping took a historic trip to Saudi Arabia and announced that China and the Gulf monarchies are going to try to do uh, trade. China is going to buy Gulf oil and gas in its own currency, the renminbi. And then finally, we see a very interesting article that was written by a prominent economist at the Swiss investment bank, Credit Suisse. And he acknowledged in this mainstream media outlet, the Financial Times, that the unipolar era is over. We are witnessing a new multipolar era and the hegemony of the US dollar is being challenged by China, Russia, and, and other countries, including the BRICS system, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So. This is going to be a, an, uh, quite a packed episode today. I'm going to be looking at a lot of interesting information that show the historic shifts that we're seeing in the global economic and financial systems and the challenges to the hegemony of the U.S. dollar and therefore U.S. imperialism. As always, I have links to all of the sources I discuss in this episode today in an article in the description below and that is over at geopoliticaleconomy.com. If you check out that link, if you read the article, you can find every source that I mention here today. 
And I'm going to start by looking at comments that were made by South Africa, which is a member of the BRICS block consisting of BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And these were comments that were made by South Africa's foreign minister, Naledi Pandor, and she made these comments in an interview with Russian state media Sputnik. And you're never allowed to quote Russian state media because it's been censored by the West, by the US and the European Union, which claim to support freedom of speech while they censor foreign media outlets that, that challenge their chokehold on the media. And so this, this interview that was conducted with the South African foreign minister with Russian media was completely ignored in the Western press, but it was extensively reported on in the Indian media. So this is an article from the Business Standard, which is an Indian website. And it notes that the BRIC system created a new bank called the New Development Bank in 2014. And that was a challenge to the US dominated World Bank. And the World Bank is known, it's infamous in the Global South for trapping countries in debt. And then the US government imposes political conditionalities and forces governments to impose the so-called Washington Consensus, which, cons which consists of neoliberal economic reforms, including mass privatizations, selling off of state assets, cutting workers' protections, cutting minimum wage, cutting health and, and education spending. So the New Development Bank was created by the BRICS system in order to provide new sources of finance for the Global South that don't have the same political conditionalities of structural adjustment that the US imposes. And in this interview, the foreign minister of South Africa, Naledi Pandor, she said, quote, we have always been concerned by the fact that there is a dominance of the dollar and that we do need to look at alternatives. And then she says, the systems currently in place tend to privilege very wealthy countries and tend to be really a challenge for countries such as ourselves, which have to make payments in dollars, which costs much more in terms of our various currencies. So what she's acknowledging there is that as currencies in countries in the global south, like South Africa, devalue against the US dollar, it makes it harder for those countries to import commodities like oil and gas and certain foods because so much international trade is still, it still involves in, invoiced in the US dollar. So that means that also countries like South Africa and other countries in the global south that have dollar denominated debt, as the dollar appreciates against their currency as it becomes stronger, it makes it harder and harder for those countries to pay off their debt and they get trapped. And this is why she said that the current systems, the economic and financial systems in place, privilege very wealthy countries, which are the imperialist countries that colonize the global south. And then she says, we want to create a more fair system. Here she says, quote, this is the South African foreign minister, quote, so I do think a fairer system has to be developed. And it's something we're discussing with the BRICS ministers in the economic sector discussions. In the same interview with Sputnik, the South African foreign minister said, quote, within the economic context, we are looking at how the new development bank and other institutional formations may assist us to develop a fairer system of monetary exchange. So she's acknowledging that 
the BRICS bank, the NDB, is working on new payment mechanisms that don't involve the US dollar. She also said, again, in this interview, the South African foreign minister criticized the US for imposing illegal unilateral sanctions. And she said, quote, we always have a problem with unilateral sanctions and their impact on many countries that fall outside a particular conflict. So we have indicated to our friends in the United States that we really want them to relook at this imposition of unilateral sanctions, which is often not very helpful a strategy in resolving problems. So those are the comments made by South Africa's foreign minister. And there are also are huge developments going on in Saudi Arabia. Historically, Saudi Arabia has been one of the closest U.S. allies in West Asia and was for many decades basically just a U.S. client regime. But the political situation is changing. And we this is an article that we have from oilprice.com. And it's titled, Saudi Arabia is open to discuss non-dollar oil trade settlements. And they note Saudi Arabia is the world's largest exporter of oil. And the Saudi finance minister, Mohammed Al-Jadan, told B Bloomberg TV in an interview that Riyadh is considering selling oil in other currencies, not just the US dollar. And the Saudi foreign minister said, quote, there are no issues with discussing how we settle our trade arrangements, whether it is in the US dollar, whether it is in the euro, whether it is in the Saudi rial. I don't think we are waving away or ruling out any discussion that will help improve the trade around the world. Now, this might not sound like very radical comments, and he did try to downplay the severity of those comments, but this is public confirmation of of a rumor that's been going around in many reports in the media for months. And the first time I saw this uh, in a mainstream media outlet, it was reported in alternative media for a long time, but in a mainstream media outlet was in the Wall Street Journal back in March 2022. The Wall Street Journal published an article titled Saudi Arabia considers accepting yuan instead of dollars for Chinese oil. And the article mentioned Saudi Arabia is in active talks with Beijing to price some of its oil sales to China in Yuan. However, this article in the Wall Street Journal was based on anonymous sources. It was not publicly confirmed by the Saudi government. And then there were similar comments that were made by Chinese President Xi Jinping. President Xi took a historic trip to Saudi Arabia in December of 2022. And there's a photo of President Xi in Riyadh meeting with the 21 member states of the Arab League. And you can see in the middle of the photo that President Xi is standing next to the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He's also on the other side, standing next to Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, and the King of Jordan, King Abdullah and other leaders of United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Bahrain, Kuwait, um, other members of the, the Arab League. So this was a historic trip. And in this trip, President Xi in Riyadh announced that China is going to do trade with the members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, which include the Gulf monarchies. 
China is going to buy their oil and gas in its own currency, the renminbi, the yuan. And the full comment from President Xi back in December was, quote, China will continue to import large quantities of crude oil from GCC countries. The GCC is the Gulf Cooperation Council. He said China will, quote, expand imports of liquefied natural gas, strengthen cooperation in upstream oil and gas development, engineering services, storage, transportation and refining, and make full use of the Shanghai Petroleum and Natural Gas Exchange as a platform to carry out yuan settlement of oil, gas, and trade. That is what's really important about this. Yuan settlement. That is, China is going to be buying this oil and gas from some of the world's largest oil and gas producers in its own currency, not the US dollar. Now, this is an absolutely historic development because since the 1970s, Saudi Arabia has been selling its oil in US dollars and then using those oil revenues and investing those in US Treasury securities, which helps maintain the status of the US dollar as the global reserve currency. It helps to finance the constant decades long US trade deficit and current account deficit. And this was acknowledged in a very interesting article in Bloomberg back in 2016, titled The Untold Story Behind Saudi Arabia's 41-Year U.S. Debt Secret. And this explains the beginning of the petrodollar system, right? And this article mentions a meeting in 1974 in which the U.S. Treasury Secretary William Simon and his deputy Jerry Parsky traveled to Saudi Arabia and Bloomberg writes that their goal was to, quote, neutralize crude oil as an economic weapon and find a way to persuade a hostile kingdom, that's Saudi Arabia, to finance America's widening deficit with its newfound petrodollar wealth. And the article noted that U.S. President Richard Nixon made it clear that there was simply no coming back empty-handed. Failure would not only jeopardize America's financial health, but would also give the Soviet Union an opening to make further inroads into the Arab world. And the article notes, based on documents that it obtained from a Freedom of Information Act request, it notes that the framework of the agreement in 1974, which was worked out over several months of negotiation, the basic framework was strikingly simple. The U.S. would buy oil from Saudi Arabia and provide the kingdom military aid and equipment. In return, the Saudis would plow billions of their petrodollar revenue back into treasuries and finance America's spending. And that is what's so significant about this. It's not only about the fact that Saudi Arabia helped to, to maintain the hegemony of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency, but it also by buying, by selling oil in the U.S. dollar, but also by, by investing those dollars that it made from its oil sales in U.S. Treasury securities, it helped maintain consistent demand for U.S. Treasury securities, and it helped the United States maintain this constant trade deficit and current account deficit, which now could be I mean, if the petrodollar is going to be challenged, the U.S. can no longer have this free lunch where it constantly imports way more than the rest of the world and and basically 
can run any kind of deficit it wants, which is always a military deficit. It's not a deficit because it's spending on, you know, a welfare state for working people or for healthcare or for education. The U.S. is decidedly not doing that. It is a military deficit because the U.S. spends over a trillion dollars a year on its military budget. I mean, now it's on the books, 850 billion, but everyone knows that when you actually add in other costs, it's actually more than a trillion dollars. And those are, that's just a spending on the books. I mean, the, the Pentagon has failed every audit that it's ever tried to do. There is tens of trillions of dollars of unaccounted spending by the Pentagon. And the reason the U.S. can do that is because the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency and because historically countries would invest those dollars in U.S. Treasury securities. But now fewer and fewer central banks around the world are interested in doing that. And as I've mentioned in some of my analysis here, I'll link in the description below to an analysis I recently did about China investing, China's central bank investing more in gold reserves and also uh, the Russian central bank investing more in gold for its foreign exchange reserves and fewer countries buying treasury securities. That means smaller demand for U.S. Treasury securities. And at this point, I want to give credit to the excellent financial analyst Luke Groman of FFT, Forest for the Trees. You can find his channel over at YouTube. He made a really good point about how by China being able to buy Saudi oil and, and Gulf gas in its own currency, the renminbi, that means that China has less of a need for dollars. And it also provides another way for China to maintain the exchange rate between the, the yuan and the dollar. And that means that if China wants to be more competitive, it can slightly devalue its currency by, by changing the percentage of oil and gas it buys in dollars versus renminbi. And if it wants the yuan to, to increase in value to, to increase purchasing power and domestic consumption, it can once again change that accordingly. And Luke Groman made another really good point here. Now, I just want to actually read what he said because it's a brilliant point and, and I agree with his analysis. He pointed out that also if China is able to import Gulf energy with, with its own currency as opposed to the U.S. dollar, he says that this structurally reduces China's need for treasuries going forward. And... Luke pointed out that China's central bank basically hasn't been investing in uh, net, hasn't bought net treasury securities from the United States really since 2011 or 2012. So we see that, you know, as he put it, China's need to hold dollars, i.e. treasuries, shrinks structurally. And this is a slow change, but it's happening more and more quickly if China has the ability of importing oil in its own currency. And Luke Groman pointed out that this has major implications on monetary policy in the United States. And he said, what it means is if, I'm quoting from him here, from his great analysis, if the Federal Reserve doesn't print the difference between what foreign countries like China used to buy and what they no longer need to buy because they don't need to store as many treasuries, that means the dollar goes to the moon and treasury yields start going up, which is exactly what we started seeing in 2021. So these are absolutely historic tectonic shifts. And it shows that what the economist Michael Hudson had spelled out in his book, Super Imperialism, showing the free lunch that the United States constructed itself for itself by basically forcing countries around the world to, to store one, 
the majority of their foreign exchange reserves in dollars and in, in, in the sense of US foreign and US Treasury securities, but also in making so many countries around the world uh, get dollars so they can import oil and gas and commodities. If they no longer need to do that and there's less of a demand for the US dollar, the US, the exorbitant privilege of the US dollar can no longer be maintained. And that means that this fundamental you know, free lunch that, that U.S. imperialism economically has been predicated on no longer exists. It loses, you know, the, the, it loses the free lunch. The rug is pulled out of under it. And finally, this brings me to the last thing that I wanted to discuss today, which is an incredible article over at the Financial Times and op-ed by a brilliant economist, Zoltan Bosar, who's a Hungarian economist who works at the major Swiss investment bank, Credit Suisse. And this article in the Financial Times, published on January 20th, is titled, Great Power Conflict Puts the Dollar's Exorbitant Privilege Under Threat. The monetary order is already being challenged by de-dollarization efforts and central bank digital currencies. And I just want to go through and read some of the main points in here because he, again, this is a mainstream economist at a major Swiss bank he is the global head of short-term interest rate strategy at Credit Suisse. And he's been he's saying now what, what heterodox economists like Michael Hudson have been saying for many years. And you know, Michael Hudson is often criticized by mainstream bourgeois neoliberal economists. They say, you know, he's a socialist and he's heterodox. But this they, they can't ignore the fact that now more mainstream economists like Zoltan Posar. Credit Suisse are saying something very similar, basically the same as what Michael Hudson has been saying. And we should also keep in mind that this is the Financial Times, one of the world's leading financial media outlets. So I'm going to read here some of the main points he says. Since the end of the first Cold War, the world was largely unipolar. The U.S. was the undisputed hegemon. And the U.S. dominated this era of globalization but I would add that it was a form of neoliberal globalization in which the U.S. imposed its neoliberal economic model on countries around the world. And he notes that the dollar was the currency of choice. But he says, however, today geopolitics poses a formidable set of challenges to the existing world order. China is proactively writing a fresh set of rules. So China is changing fundamentally the global financial and economic system. And China is creating a new type of globalization through institutions such as the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRICS plus group of emerging countries, and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Now, I like, I like what he said here for a few reasons. One, the BRICS plus, not just the BRICS, because the BRICS is expanding. It's no longer just Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. We've seen that Iran and Argentina have applied to join. Algeria has expressed interest in joining. Even Turkey, a member of NATO, now formerly known as Turkey, now Turkey, even Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, they have expressed interest in joining Indonesia. So I, what, another thing that I like that he says here is he says China is creating a new type of globalization. I like that a lot because sometimes you will hear people who will rightfully criticize the U.S. dominated neoliberal phase of globalization, but they act as though that's the only kind of globalization, when in reality, there are many different kinds of possible globalization. 
There's nothing inherently wrong with globalization. What's wrong is with imperialism, when globalization is used by certain economic and political powers to impose on other countries to extract their wealth and natural resources and exploit their labor, which is what the neoliberal phase of globalization under US unipolar hegemonic dominance has represented in the past 30 years. And now China is creating a new form of globalization with a socialist government led by the Communist Party of China. And China says this is a form of globalization based on what they refer to as win-win strategic cooperation. So it fundamentally represents a new, not only a new institution and an alternative, but this new kind of globalization and this new economic and financial system is one predicated on a completely different economic model, not neoliberal capitalism. <clears throat> now, in this article, Posar continues, this economist, and he says, Beijing formed, forged a special relationship with Moscow and Tehran, which, by the way, is exactly what the U.S. imperial strategist and former national security advisor for the Truman administration, Zbigniew Brzezinski, he warned about this in his book, The, the Grand Chessboard. Brzezinski said in 1997 that the biggest threat to U.S. hegemonic domination of Eurasia would be an anti-hegemonic alliance of China, Russia, and Iran. He wrote that in 1997 in his book, The Grand Chessboard, and that's exactly what we're seeing today. And this economist, again, this is in the Financial Times, Zoltan Posar, he says here that we saw the very first summit between China and the Gulf Cooperation Council, and hence a deepening of China's ties with OPEC+. And OPEC+, includes the oil uh, exporting countries along with Russia, which is not technically a member of OPEC. And then he says what this is leading to is one world, two systems. It's another very clever observation. And he's referencing one country, two systems, which is the term that China uses to refer to the system that it has with Hong Kong, which was a British colony until the 1990s. And then after the end of British colonialism and the reintegration of Hong Kong into the People's Republic of China, it was allowed to maintain its economic system, which is really just an, a neoliberal capitalist system. And China referred to that as one country, to systems. Now in this article, Posar points out that we are drifting from a unipolar world to a multipolar one. And he says, the dollar-based monetary order is already being challenged in multiple ways, but to stand out, these are the two main ways in which these new institutions are challenging US dollar hegemony. One, the spread of de-dollarization efforts, and two, the emergence of central bank digital currencies. So he starts with the first one. He says, de-dollarization is not new. It began with the launch of quantitative easing in the wake of the financial crisis. So in the crash in 2008, and the US Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank, began this policy of quantitative easing in which the US uh, Central Bank was buying first these toxic mortgage-backed securities that were based on you know, these subprime mortgages and these were just toxic assets. They were worth huge sums of money, but, but no one wanted to invest in them because they were just worthless. They were completely risk, risky. They were based on you know, just so many mortgage, subprime mortgages that, that homeowners weren't gonna pay off and couldn't pay off and then they, they foreclosed 
their homes are foreclosed on, they lost their houses. So the, the US Federal Reserve began buying up all of these toxic assets. And then it just began buying huge sums of treasury securities. And what that meant is that current account surplus countries, that is countries that export more than they import. And that includes not only countries like China and Russia, but it also includes even Western allies like Germany and the Netherlands, which consistently export much more than they import because basically, you know, the, the current account surplus countries are countries that export commodities like oil, gas, or their major industrial powers like China and Germany. And what that means is that as the U.S. Federal Reserve was carrying out quantitative easing at the estimate of, you know, trillions of dollars worth of assets here, what that meant is that countries with current account surpluses were having negative real returns on their savings. That is to say, they were losing money when they were investing in treasury securities because the interest rates were so low. And so what that meant is that de-dollarization started to pick up. And he points out that in the past year, China and India have begun paying for Russian commodities in renminbi, Chinese currency, in Indian rupees, and also in the, the currency of the United Arab Emirates, which is the Durham. India has launched a rupee settlement mechanism for its international transactions. Well, that, that's for its trade with Russia. So Russia and India are doing trade with each other involving Indian rupees and Russian rubles. And China has asked Gulf Cooperation Council countries to make full use of the Shanghai Petroleum and Natural Gas Exchange for the renminbi settlement of oil and gas trade over the next three to five years. And with the expansion of BRICS to beyond Brazil, Russia, India, and China, and also South Africa, he doesn't mention, the de-dollarization of trade flows may proliferate. He argues that central bank digital currencies could accelerate this. More than half of the world's central banks are exploring or developing the use of digital currencies. And the emerging network of central bank digital currencies this network, which is enforced by bilateral currency swap lines. And I talked about that in a separate episode I did about China and Argentina doing currency swap lines. And also China is doing this with Pakistan and Sri Lanka and other countries that suffer from high rates of, of foreign currency denominated debt. China, it, what it does is it's basically helping to provide more reserves for these countries. But instead of just giving them dollars or something, what it does is the Chinese central bank gives those countries yuan, and then those countries central bank give the Chinese central bank, the People's Bank of China, their respective currency. So I talked in a separate uh, report, which I can link to in the description below, about how Argentina was is taking tens of billions of dollars worth of yuan from the Chinese central bank, and then is in, in return giving that amount at a fixed exchange rate in the Argentine currency, the Argentine peso, it's giving that to, essentially lending that to the Chinese central bank, and then they each pay each other back. And that's a way of encouraging more bilateral trade with, between countries in their own respective currencies and removing the US dollar. So Posar points out in his article here that this new network of central bank digital currencies will enable central banks in the global south and also in the east to serve as foreign exchange dealers to intermediary to intermediate currency flows between local banking systems 
all without referencing the dollar or touching the Western banking system. And this is a brilliant point. This is a way for countries essentially to to for banks banks in place, you know, like China, places like China. This is a way for them to have a new financial system to provide loans and financial support for other countries without the use of the US dominated banking system and the SWIFT system and the US dollar. So he says that change is already afoot. The current account surpluses of China, Russia and Saudi Arabia are at a record. That's another way of saying that China, Russia and Saudi Arabia have large trade surpluses. They're exporting much more than they're importing and that these surpluses are largely not being recycled into traditional reserve assets like treasury securities, which offer negative real returns at current inflation rates. So what that means is that if you're a central bank of a country like China, why would you invest this, the, you know, the surplus, all the extra money you get when you sell your products? Why would you invest those in US Treasury bonds or bills if those only have a very small interest rate and current inflation is larger than that interest rate, which means that you're actually in the long term, you're losing money by holding your investments, your your foreign exchange reserves in US securities. Instead, we've seen that China is China Central Bank is buying gold. We also see that central banks are basically investing that surplus in commodities. Saudi Arabia is investing in mining. And we see geopolitical investments like the Belt and Road Initiative and helping allies and neighbors in need like Turkey, Egypt or Pakistan. So he's referring to China doing these currency line swaps with Turkey, Egypt, Pakistan. So he says this is the final paragraph here. And again, Posar, Zoltan Posar says this very well. He says, if less trade is invoiced in US dollars, and there is a dwindling recycling of dollar surpluses into traditional reserve assets such as treasuries, the exorbitant privilege that the dollar holds as the international reserve currency could be under assault. So a brilliant article, succinct, well put in a mainstream media outlet, the Financial Times, by this mainstream economist Zoltan Posar, who has been referred to as a superstar of modern day economics. He's saying largely what the economist Michael Hudson has been saying for many years, but this guy is completely mainstream writing in the Financial Times at a major Swiss investment bank. So this really shows the dramatic shifts we're seeing in the world, not only politically, not only geopolitically, but economically. Of course, those are all related. You can't understand geopolitics without economics. You can't understand economics without geopolitics. So that's why here at Geopolitical Economy Report, we provide you regular analysis and original investigative reporting. I'm Ben Norton. If you want to support the work that we do here, you can go to geopoliticaleconomy.com support, or you can become a, patri a patron over at patreon.com geopoliticaleconomy. And I will see everyone next time. Thanks a lot.